Welcome to The Other Web. Our guest today is Quentin Newman, a U.S. Navy nuclear engineer turned software engineer turned AI startup founder. His startup, Capri AI, creates a virtual AI assistant that can do anything from copywriting to customer support. We reached out to Quentin to get his view on how the AI ecosystem is evolving and what to expect next. Quentin, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. So I've seen that you've done a lot of work with AI lately. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, for sure. So one of the biggest things that um, I noticed when I was running my social media marketing agency was that my clients just, they didn't have the ability to like respond to messages coming in, through, especially through their website, but just through anywhere. And so uh, I realized that we needed some kind of solution to do texting and responding and scheduling and all that kind of stuff. And so that was where Capri AI started. And we started with dialogue flow, like with Google's AI solution that used a different type of AI than what exists today. And uh, that was like three years ago. And then, you know, fast forward to November 2022, ChatGPT comes out and we're able to completely swap out the engine from being dialogue flow to now being ChatGPT. And you're able to basically train an AI assistant to do things like schedule appointments, handle customer support, handle outbound sales, text messages, and, and stuff like that. So yeah, that's what we're focusing on is, is helping businesses actually create AI agents. So you're essentially taking an already built model and turning it into a customizable chatbot. Does exactly. That yeah, we're doing a lot of prompt engineering that allows you to basically have dynamic outputs based off of what's being said right now. So like a lot of the things that like one of the big challenges is that like I can't have chat GPT go read a spreadsheet that has the answers to the questions on it. So that's what our app allows you to do is connect a spreadsheet, have the bot be able to read that spreadsheet and even connect multiple spreadsheets so that way you can have it read between different ones based off of what's being asked. And I'm assuming it's also kind of a translation layer between the user that asked the question in user language, basically, and you translating it into a prompt that actually gets the right answer out of ChatGPT. Exactly. And we've even set up like a training environment so that where, you know, we do some of the prompt manipulation on the back end, but for the most part, we let you put your own prompt in. And then in the training environment, you're able to test that prompt and see how it's doing and see what the responses are like. And then you can change some of the responses and create a memory. So we we created this like, yeah, this little like training garden almost where you can build memories for your AI to pull on later when it's having a similar conversation. So this is interesting. One of the big complaints I've heard from people is that every time they interact with ChatGPT or Bard or any of these agents, they have to start from scratch. It doesn't remember their preferences or the things that they actually like to get out of it. So you maintain the memory layer and then every exactly. time you send the prompt, you kind of remind ChatGPT of the entire history? Exactly. Yeah. So anytime we have a conversation coming through, we have the full conversation history so that it always knows what's been said so far. And then we do also include all of the training information that's been provided to us by the user. So whenever the user does all this training and puts all this like these memories in there, basically we load them according to what is closest to what the current conversation is. So like that's the cool part is whenever you ask me a question, my brain automatically changes what active memories I'm pulling from to determine what I'm going to say. And a lot of it comes all the way from childhood of when I was, you know, just learning how to talk all the way up until like what I did last week and how it impacts what we're talking about now. 
So that memory recall functionality is what's really been missing from AI, from natural language bots. You have to load all the data at once for it to be able to remember, right? But you essentially have to understand the context. So if I'm talking to one person, I might need to be really friendly, polite, careful, kind of gradually go into the topic. And with another person, I have to be super direct. And I learned yeah. over time that when I interact with this person, program A, when I right. inter interact with this person, program B. So you have these kind of preferences that tell ChatGPT. And by the way, when you answer to this particular person, don't make stuff up. <laughs> be factual. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we have the ability to set boundaries for telling ChatGPT what it knows and what it doesn't know. So that's like the big thing is like they call these like hallucinations where it makes things up that is not necessarily true. So what we do is we, through prompt engineering and then also just uh, semantic similarity, will inject the parts of the prompt that are most relevant to what's being asked right now. And we'll also set rules to say, don't talk about anything else outside of that. And so it's like you're really refining down the knowledge into just what needs to be talked about right now. Okay, so first of all, that's really cool. I know a lot of people who are going to need this. Yeah. But now, if we take a step upward and look at this system and the greater context, do you think that this is the way things will continue to be? That you will have one big model that everybody uses, but then everybody will have their own translation layers? Or are we moving into a world where next week you're going to have your own GPT-4 clone, essentially? Oh, I see. That is built from the ground up. I'll say, I'll give two answers. I'll say in the short term, we're definitely just going to see a few foundation models that exist. And um, everybody's going to be responsible for integrating their own data. Or like service providers like myself will pop up. And there's going to be the ability to integrate with like a website. Like if you want to be able to pull data from a website in real time or from a database or from a spreadsheet or something like that. That's like the integration layer. To get rid of that, you would have to fine tune a model and then host that model yourself. And for right now, the costs just don't make sense. Like, even though I have a service that I'm providing that I'm reselling for, it still doesn't make sense, at least at this point, for me to fine tune and host my own large language model because the GPU power required to train is insane, especially like for the smallest language models, like the smallest large open source model is uh, Meta, is Meta's uh, Llama 2. Yeah. yeah, there's 70 billion parameters on that model. To train 70 billion parameters, you got to have at least like 200 gigabytes of virtual RAM available to be able to host the model, host the data, train the model. Like, So that's insane in itself. That's going to be super expensive, like at least a few hundred dollars every time I want to do training. And the thing about training that they don't tell you is you never get it right the first time. <laughs> you always have to retrain, right? You always have to do it again. And so like, yeah, it gets very expensive very quickly. And then on top of that, I have to host the architecture for inference of being able to like do the chat in the long run. And that still requires a really big server, like a really high capacity server to be able to even load the model to do the inference to then be able to return the the thing. So it's like, Right now, the distributed compute method that's going on is still like, for, at least from what I can see, that's what's going to make the most sense. 
Now, if something drastically changes where it becomes way, way easier and cheaper to train and run a model because something improves with computers or something improves with the algorithms or whatever, then maybe, yeah, you'll start seeing a lot of people just pull their own models and just, you know, use it that way. But I don't see that happening anytime soon. <laughs> I, I, mean, I guess the change is going to be Moore's law. It still applies, right? And yeah. with Llama specifically, you mentioned inference. The inference is not that expensive. I think I can run it as long as it's not too much material. Will be something like 800, 900 bucks a month. Right. Yeah. Just have the smallest possible GPU instance that can kind of manage it. Right. Yeah. And I mean, well, so that's, you're talking about just keeping it hosted all the time, though, right? Like if you, well, and, and running some text sort of through it as inference, right? But not retraining anything. Right. Well, so I guess the way that I approach it is that like, I was kind of born into a serverless world. Like that's kind of how I got into cloud computing was everything was serverless. And so like in my mind, when you run production apps, you run them usually on a serverless type of thing, like Kubernetes or some type of, you know, something like that. And so in my mind, you're talking about like that's for one server to host the model all, you know, basically all month and, and do some a few requests. But I'm thinking about like really high, high volume. Like we get hundreds of requests a second through Capri right now. And if we had to support just because the latency is so long on these requests, like we we can't share, you know, one instance while it's processing it. And the only other option is to basically make the other ones wait until this one's done. Or spin up another instance. And so it's like the latency is just so high that I'm just going to keep spinning up all these instances. And that's where the cost really comes from. And so, I mean, you can do a lot, obviously, with like load balancer managing and stuff and have like a fixed number of servers that you keep up all the time. But either way, as you scale up, it's going to, you know, it's going to continue to get. Yeah. And, and it depends on the use case a lot, right? Yeah. In our case, most of what we use that stuff for is processing news articles and posts, right? Right. And so we just sample once a minute. We get our few hundred articles that have been published during this minute. And so it's pretty predictable. There is some variance throughout the day. But for the most part, we can do it with fixed servers. But I can see why in your case that won't work. Yeah. What do you think about the reinforcement learning part of this with human feedback? Is this something that we should just trust the GPTs of the world or the open AIs of the world to do for us? Should we be weary about the same foundation model with the same biases then affecting everybody else that built stuff on top of it? Because maybe they sampled the group of people in Kenya from yeah. only students, and so we're only getting the biases of 20-year-olds, let's say. Yeah. Um, like, Is that something that we should duplicate, or is that the most expensive part and we can't? Yeah, that's, generally speaking, that the reinforcement from human feedback is the training part of it that is so expensive. Now, you can do a lot of like prompt engineering before you really got to start fine tuning. But what I worry about honestly in terms of like where we're going is is the ethics and not necessarily like the morality of the ethics, it's more the legality of the ethics of like <laughs> You know, like, you know, it's not necessarily me saying if it's right or wrong. It's more so the law and where it falls. And like, you know, I'm, I don't know if you've seen, but like OpenAI is in the middle of a lawsuit right now with uh, New York Times. Right. You know, and that is like the, what they're, the precedent they're setting there is basically going to be make or break for all of this. Because if the court basically says, hey, that is copyrighted material, you trained on it, you monetized off of the output, 
that's violation of copyright because you're hurting the original author. Then all of the people who are <laughs> making money off of these large language models and doing the exact same thing are screwed, especially OpenAI. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm going to make a bold prediction and say that courts recently have found that scraping is legal. And so okay. I don't really see a distinction here in the training stage. But then if you remember the case where CNET was publishing articles written by ChatGPT, right. and it was later found out that the vast majority of these articles had entire paragraphs lifted from some prior work. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that part is a copyright yeah, violation, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> and the problem is that at the inference stage, the model has no access to the training material. So it has no idea it's yeah. plagiarizing right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what I feel a lot of it, because a lot of people ask me, like, well, what if AI is used for a weapon and you know we do this out of the other? It's like it comes down to who's training the model. These models don't really train themselves. Like unsupervised learning from scratch is still not at a point that you could really rely on it. Like you have to have a training structure in place. There has to be a person intentionally putting data into a model, at least right now. So with that being said, in my view, I can argue it both ways. I can see it being like, yep, you when you were training it, you knew you were going to monetize off of it. Like that was the only reason you spend that kind of money to train it. It's not just in the pursuit of AI, it's to make money and create you know, returns for your investors. So like in that sense, it's like what they did was against copyright law. But on the other side, fair use extends to the internet. And uh, you can do like parodies of works and you can do slight like variations of, of stuff and claim it as your own. And it's not violating copyright, copyright law because of like freedom of speech or whatever. So um, in that case, you could say that like the model is making its own interpretation of what it was trained on because, like you said, at inference, it doesn't technically have access to the data. So it's just making a prediction. Like it's just doing what you know it thinks makes sense. Yeah, but when that prediction ends up parroting something verbatim yeah. and it's more than a hundred words in a row with without any variations, right? You could argue that at that point. Yeah, maybe you memorized it, but your memory is still good, right? Yeah. That's unfair. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's like, well, so where are the damages? And that's what it really seems the argument's coming down to is like, who's getting hurt, you know? And like, well, you can come up with very obvious examples of where that's going to be the case, right? Exactly. So if I can ask ChatGPT, what are the top reviews for a particular restaurant? And it will just give me all the Yelp reviews yeah. because it happened to be trained on them. Yeah. Then there's an obvious damage here, right? I'm not going to go to Yelp. Yeah, and that's exactly yeah. what New York Times is arguing. Like They're saying like people don't need to go to the site anymore. We're not getting AdWords revenue anymore. We're not getting click-through revenue anymore. Like Nobody needs to go to the news site. If you can just ask ChatGPT about a news article from you know 2011 or whatever, you don't need to go to the well, New York granted, Times. Granted, most people don't go to the New York Times to read an article from 2011, right? Right. right. So, but they're going to Google. They're going to Google and searching something, and then they end up on the Times site, right? With ChatGPT, yeah. you wouldn't end up on the Times site. And and then the bigger thing will happen when ChatGPT or whatever comes next will actually be real time and will not keep telling you that it was only trained until some months. Yeah, months in exactly. But I'm also wondering, I want to get into the ethics ethics part of it, not the legal ethics. You said not the ethics, morality. Morality and ethics are the same word in two different languages, right? (laughs) (laughs) One is Latin, the other is Greek. So first of all, let's talk about that particular scenario. If those large language models start actually training themselves in real time and consuming the latest material, 
is there a risk of kind of a runaway train here with a model that trains itself on stuff that it said yesterday? Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, not really, because you can always keep a database of what has been trained. I mean, it depends on how you're indexing the data and stuff like that. Like if you keep track of the URL and then the content within the URL changes and you got to rescrape that, like it can you can basically be training in 99% the same stuff except for one sentence is different. And so then, yeah, now you're getting into this overfitting. And so this is the problem with like this unsupervised learning as what I was saying earlier is like, it doesn't know how to discern its own data quality right now. And like, unless we train another model to do that. And so that's kind of where like the multimodal things are coming in is like the, it wants to be able to, you want to be able to train it on like if this is a good enough quality data set or piece or not, and then if it is, train it in. But then again, you you come down to the same problem in the initial model of like determining if it's good or bad. You, you know, it, it may not train stuff in that is good just because it, it doesn't quite understand. So you got to have training in there somewhere. You gotta have human. And, and by the way, that's been maybe that's because I'm old fashioned and my brain still works in rule based, right? But every time I've seen some problem with how one of our models performed, like the ML guys immediately want to gather more data and retrain. And I immediately want to go into the existing data set and find what caused the error right. because there's obviously some garbage in there somewhere. Yeah, garbage in, garbage out is the famous saying of, of AI for sure. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I end up sometimes hunting things down manually of you know, which article was causing this kind of thing yeah. when it was added to the data set. But I don't know, people might, might be laughing at me because everybody's right now working on these huge amounts of data, huge amounts of parameters, and I'm hunting things down manually to see what caused the error. Yeah. <laughs> might be outdated. But all right, so I, I guess what I meant with that question specifically is right now, at least we are fairly certain that the things that GPT is trained on were not produced by an AI model. They were produced by humans. Right. And so you only have one layer removed between what machine learning produces and what humans produce. But what if the machine learning models start ingesting the output of machine learning models? Right? Then every bias will essentially get amplified over time. Right. Every hallucination yeah. <laughs> will become the essentially the truth layer for the next level from which it will hallucinate. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we definitely run into this, this risk of like, and I think it's really the, the ultimate goal for a lot of people and where they think AGI is going to be, is going to be for a model's ability to train itself. And this kind of comes down to the fundamental philosophy of what you think like intelligence is and like consciousness, because it's like humans keep learning every day. Like no matter what, we're always still learning something. Some part of our environment makes its way into our memory every day. But like machine learning models only learn when they're prompted to learn, right? And so, and so if we give it the ability to just learn on its own with no guidance other than the initial guidance we gave it to start with, its probability of reaching a better state than when it started right now is very, very low. Like from all the experiments we've seen, and a lot of that comes down to, I think the way we're doing these predictions are just too simple still because like everything comes down to stochastic gradient descent for the most part, right? Like 
having some kind of just like try, fail, learn, try again, fail, learn, try, you know. So like that way of learning, while it's proven to be amazing and we've have tons of ways of putting it into different orders and creating these large structures like transformers that can do it in a bunch of different ways and do masking and like attention head mechanism stuff. Like all of that is still just a derivation of the fact that we're doing this like back propagation technique where we're just like making a prediction, learning and then trying again. And I, I think when it comes to genuine intelligence, that's not going to cut it. There's just, there's something else missing that is that intuition and that kind of like, well, let me, let me take a different route that would probably fall outside. Like it would fall outside of what I would normally think is a way to go about doing this, but you know, maybe it'll give me some benefit that, you know, I, I have this like hunch, I have this feeling, this inference inside of me. That's telling me that I can. But where does it, where does that come from? Isn't intuition essentially a kind of bottled up experience? Yeah. Well, so now we're getting into: Do you believe God put that there, or do you believe it was evolution, or you know who knows? Well, like, no. that's so, what... <laughs> uh, uh, intuition. I don't think it comes from either God or evolution, for the most part, to the extent that you believe in either of those things, right? <laughs> but I, I assume most people believe one and not right, one or the other. Um, so I don't know. I think intuition. Like I used to play chess competitively, mm. okay, right? You start playing chess, you don't have an intuition of what's going to work, right? But once you find yourself in a lot of tactical situations, and some of the stuff you do works, and some of the stuff you do doesn't work, and maybe you watch other people's games from the past, and you see what worked and what doesn't, now you start looking at the particular idea, and you don't actually have to calculate. You just see this kind of stuff usually works. Mm, yeah, Right? And to me, that's intuition. Right? Yeah. It's just your experience says that every time you've seen this pattern before, it works. Mm. Yeah. Um, I, in that, when I see intuition as a unique human feature, the way that I see it is like, I've never tried that before, but I'm just going to try it just to see what the experience is. It's like almost like a curiosity as well. It's like, I don't know how to describe it. It's, this is what I struggle with a lot when I talk to like in depth about this kind of stuff is because like we are talking about the big questions here. Like we're talking about intelligence and we're talking about consciousness and, and like awareness, you know, and like, cause that's what it's the whole argument around AGI is like, is it going to be aware and is it going to understand and have that same kind of human level intelligence? And like for me, learning from an experience is only really part of that overall human intelligence that we're, we seem to be trying to replicate. Like going through an experience is kind of only one part of it, but there's a lot of what makes us do what we do that we still don't fully understand. And we're trying to train that part of it into, a, into an AI model. And we just don't know. You know, We don't know what we don't know yet. But regardless, we're still trying to have this question of like, okay, so can we just let it be unsupervised the way we are and just let it, you know, let it learn? And, you know, I don't know to be, you know, to, to be honest. Honestly, only if somebody has access to the power switch, but. Yeah, exactly. I mean, dude, at this point, it's like, you know, and I've just, I have a, you know, I have a daughter now, she's three. And like, I think about this a lot and in, in respect to her and like how kids learn and you know, my daughter is not learning unsupervised. Most kids don't, <laughs> you know, like most kids learn from supervised learning. I mean, there's a combination, right? And probably over time, it shifts more from the supervised type of learning to an unsupervised one. Um, yeah. But I'm also thinking, 
maybe I'm being a little bit too romantic here, but I think humans get more varied feedback. So it's not like the feedback that we're getting from the world is just good, not good, or the extent to which this is working. Yeah. Right. Some of the feedback we get is fuzzy feeling. Yeah. Some of the feedback we get is uh, a bit disgusting, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. so it's not unidimensional. It mm-hmm. kind of falls into different buckets that we came up with words for. Yeah. I don't know if the words even represent the buckets accurately, but it's probably just a whole bunch of chemicals that produce these kind of weird combinations. I don't know if we can program those yet. Yeah, we, that's, I mean, we don't know, but we're going to find out, man. I mean, the thing that the, the thing that I keep in mind with this, though, too, is that we are currently at the stage of like equivalent compute of like the 60s. Like, remember, computers used to be just huge and take up entire rooms, and now the same capacity can fit into a phone or, you know, even smaller, like a watch, you know? So like these large language models are only learning through billion, hundreds of billions or trillions of parameters. And those parameters are what is providing the guidance of, you know, if it's doing good or not. And those parameters kind of discuss everything that can be discussed within that model. But like, that's not necessarily how our brain works. Like our, you know, our, our prefrontal cortex works differently and does its predictions differently than our, you know, um, cerebellum or whatever it's called, the, the small, the amygdala. The amygdala has very, very simple predictions that it does. And it's just based off of what it sees. If you have an immediate threat, you have a fight or flight response and that's the amygdala. And that's just how it works. The prefrontal cortex is more with like emotion and reasoning and logic and stuff like that. And so it it takes in way more variables. So it would have hundreds of billions of parameters to evaluate, whereas the amygdala only has a few parameters to evaluate. But we're putting everything under the exact same piece. Like we're imagining the brain is just one big thing for these AI. So I think as we get a better understanding of the parts of our brain and how they relate to each other, we're going to start seeing more of these like multimodal stuff really emerge. And we'll see smaller models that have really, really high specialization on one very, very particular part of the prediction process that we don't even really understand right now. Because that's and that's the problem with these, you know, deep learning models too, is we're putting them together and we don't we still don't fully understand why they work so well. We think that if we just keep adding parameters and keep adding parameters and keep doing training the way that we're doing, we're going to keep getting better performance. But like I feel like we're going to eventually reach a point of kind of just saturation where we just simply can't teach it to be any better you know like it's not going to just get any better at speaking english or speaking language and how close do you think we are to that point where we have to switch paradigms because the paradigm of let's just add parameters is kind of plateaued i think we're closer than we think (laughs) i think we're definitely closer than we think i think we're probably gonna yeah i don't know We'll see, though. I may be totally wrong. We may hit quantum computing. That's the other thing. Quantum computing changes all of this entire conversation. It <laughs> completely changes oh, all of it. I think quantum computing changes too many different conversations. <laughs> that even before we get to this one, none of your passwords are going to be protecting anything anymore, right? And so, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You got bigger things to worry about. But if you're still around and worrying about how the chat models are going to perform, it's going to be, you know, the ultimate upgrade to compute power because you can run, train an entire model in the blink of an eye, you know, like it's nothing. What do you think about the focus on language that we've had 
lately because ChatGPT happened to be so successful so unexpectedly, right? It seems like when everybody's talking about AI, all they're talking about is language models. But the world seems to contain more different types of information than just text. Yeah. So are we going to get stuck here for a while or do you see similar advances in other fields? No, I, so I actually put a whole prediction together. <laughs> I'll share it with you when we're done. Um, and it, what I think is going to happen is so right now in terms of language models, and I know this is going to take a left turn in a minute, but just bear with me, okay? So language models are where we're starting at, and it's because language is hard and it's also really useful. Like it's, It can do a lot of stuff for you that normally you can't have a robot do because communication is hard. So integration is first, right? So like what I'm doing with integrating sheets, with integrating databases, with integrating real-time information, that's going to come first. Because like you said, that's the next big natural step. Because you don't want to hear like, oh, as of my training back in 2021, you know, you want to have it to have real-time information. Yeah, I want to be able to ask it, okay, what's the best flight itinerary to get somewhere next week? And I want it to know. Yeah, exactly. And so, like, that's the integration thing. We've seen this with like ChatGPT, like GPT four plugins. Have you seen like ChatGPT plugins? Yeah. Yeah. So, like, that's the integration phase, and that's where we're starting. Next is voice. So, text can really only get you so far, right? Like, you have to be able to type, or you have to. It's kind of limiting. Versus voice is just a phone call away. So, imagine like you have an assistant. Like, I, I don't. I'm not at that point yet where I have an actual assistant that I can call and have her do anything I want for me, you know, and she handles all my, you know, I'm not there yet, but it will get to a point where that's very easy to obtain because you don't have to have a person doing it. Like there's, that's where I see the next big step is like voice AI is going to get to a point where it's so capable that you can talk to it like a person and it can just handle things digitally for you. It can send emails out. It can, you know, look for invoices in your system. It can, you know, do anything that you did in the integration phase. You can just basically extend that to voice. So now you don't even have to be logged in and typing anymore. Now you can do everything you can do with chat. You can do through voice. Well, let me challenge that a little bit just so that I understand your thinking on it. I type faster than I speak. Yes. I think most people right now prefer to type something on Slack instead of calling somebody and asking. And right. moreover, when I get the response via Slack, I can't tell whether an AI wrote this or a human did. Mm. Whereas if I get a response by voice, it's still in the uncanny valley territory of kind of human, but kind of creepy. Yeah. So you got to think about where you, in the scenarios where utility makes sense. And like the reason that makes sense to me is because like I go to a lot of events. So like I have to meet a lot of people. I'm not always at my computer. I don't like typing on my phone that much. Or like sometimes I just can't type on my phone because I'm driving or you know, like I, I'm mobile. I'm, I'm, I move around a lot, and so yeah, I type faster too. But if I'm, you know, in the airport headed to my next flight, and I want to get something done, I can just, and I can just call an assistant. Like that's what human assistants are for now. They're for busy people, right? Like they're for the people who are these big, successful, busy CEOs, whatever, and you know they don't have time to write their own emails or whatever. So like that, that's what they're there for now, right? But it's just like. That's just like some of our presidents who still print their own emails. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, uh, (laughs) so yeah. So like, that's where, that's why I see that is because like the only limitation to being able to use a text bot is the fact that you are able to type. So we have to remove that barrier and that's where voice comes in. Voice will remove that barrier of having to have a physical interface that you touch. 
Um, and then also just like real time voice translation is just like everybody wants that, you know, like for you to be able to speak one language and me speak another and be able to hear and understand each other. Like it's not the babble fish kind of thing. So, yeah, so that, that I see just becoming the next natural step, especially with all of this investment and interest in AI now, because it used to be like, you need so much money and so much data to train a voice model to be that good that it just doesn't make sense. But now it makes sense because now the demand has been proven. Now you can see where the applications actually come in. So that's what I think is going to be the big like next upgrade in like the AI space is going to be we're going to get to voice and being able to use voice application AI just anywhere you want. And then we're going to get to robots. <laughs> and so I know, I know that's kind of a big jump. <laughs> But you can't have robots without voice, right? Like you can have robots with with cameras all day long, but if you can't talk to them, they're like, have you seen like the Boston Dynamic robots? Yep. The reason those things can't go out into the workplace right now by themselves is because you can't talk to them. You have to have a very complicated remote that can do all this stuff and it can react in its own way and respond to the input in the cameras, but you can't ask it to go get you something without typing into, you know, this whole thing. I'm only half joking, but I think the reason they still can't go out into the world is that every doorknob is at a slightly different height. Oh, it's still yeah, messed up like, opening the yeah, door. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be sad if that was the truth. <laughs> I'm sure they've adjusted for it, that. It, it used to be the case pretty pretty recently, right? Um, I actually worked on the beam teleconferencing robot that used to drive around the office. That's yeah. the one that Edward Snowden used to speak on TED oh, okay. back from his hi- hiding place, right? And it was great as long as you don't have stairs or doors. Oh, then it's perfect. But. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's kind of an important thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, Musk, Elon Musk said it best when he was talking about, like he was on, I think it was on the Joe Rogan podcast when he talked about like, when you, when you talk about solving full self-driving, you're talking about solving real world AI. Like you're not talking about just creating a robot that can drive. You're talking about, it's got to be able to understand the real world and react, you know, accordingly. So, uh, so yeah, I think that's going to kind of be like the new norm is going to be that you can just pretty much talk to any device. You know, like if I had this Yeti microphone and it's not connecting properly, it would have an onboard voice that could tell me like, Oh, you're running a Mac. Okay. You should probably do this, this, and this, make sure you check on that. And it can respond to my questions like an onboard assistant. So I that's where I think uh that's where I think it's going to go and and then we're going to get to yeah just fully integrated robotics and and you know like human humanoid type of robotics stuff cuz like that's just the direction humans go, you know. If it can be done, they will do it. <laughs> Why not? Especially if it can allow us to get lazy. Oh, 100%. I mean, dude, iRobot, I, that was probably one of the most like iconic movies for me as a kid with Will Smith. And like, yeah, dude, I think they got it right. I think they probably, in terms of like what we're going to see in the next 10 years, because that movie is based in, I want to say it's like 2038 or something like that. It's not that far out. I think they were pretty close, like UPS, the garbage men. Like all this stuff, you know, it's all the only thing that's not is basically the cops and the doctors. Like those are basically the only things that are not fully on fully robots. So um, I think we'll see something like that eventually. Yeah, I wonder if that's 2038, then when do we get to Wally? Because I think we're 
we're pretty close to that too, yeah. right? With all of us Dude. just doing nothing yeah. and being plugged in oh, somewhere. Man, or Matrix. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, that's that's where I don't know. It's like I, I always tell people I joke around, but I'm kind of serious. Like we have kind of like three outcomes that I see, and like I think iRobot was one of them. Like that's one of the potential out, outcomes, and I'm starting to think it's going to be it no matter what. And the other two are just going to be further in the future. So the other one was Westworld. Have you ever seen Westworld? Yeah. If you guys have yep. guys listen to this, if you haven't seen Westworld, it's a great show. And, and just tr- fair warning, it's crazy. But uh, like creating like almost like a Jurassic Park theme park type thing for humanoid robots that are AI, you know. Um, so that's gonna kind of be one path. And then the other path is ex machina. Have you seen ex machina? Yeah. Yep. So, you know, in case you haven't seen it, just you know, without trying to spoil too much, basically. Very rich guy has a humanoid robot in his basement. Doesn't tell anybody else about it, <laughs> um, and keeps it for himself. But then, like, tries to have this guy come and see if it's human or not. And like, it doesn't end well. I'll just say it just doesn't. It doesn't end very well for the person. Well, the original Pygmalion doesn't end very well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So um, that was the other one that I saw as like a possibility of like somebody's going to just take it that far and do that, and then we're going to end up in that situation. Um, but I think, uh, I, I don't know, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think somebody is definitely going to keep some kind of AI in their basement and not tell everybody about it. But also some corporation is going to put together a theme park fully built with human, <laughs> like humanoid robots. I think it's kind of hard to keep something in the basement long enough for it to matter, right? Because you know, three weeks later and the world has caught up to you. And yeah. so, yeah, you have it in the basement, but it's not really better than what your neighbor has. Dude, unless you're like Jeff Bezos or one of those guys that has access to things that normal people can't get access to, you know, when you have that kind of money, like, and that was kind of the whole principle is like, if you are that person and that kind of power with that kind of resources, like in AWS at your disposal, you can do anything. (laughs) Yeah, true. But still, all you get is a head start, right? I mean, 200 years ago, even kings didn't have indoor plumbing. And now we all do. So eventually, this kind of thing propagates. Now, the question that I get a lot when I get interviewed by journalists, etc., is how are we going to handle this transition where more and more things can be done by robots? And suddenly, humans need to learn some new skill that is actually monetizable. By the time they learn it, maybe that's not monetizable either. Like, um, we've seen these transitions in the past and some of them have been pretty painful. Mm. Everybody talks about horse and buggy. Okay, it's great. We got rid of the horse and buggy. All the drivers learned to do something else. Cool. You don't see any bad results of that transition. But mechanization of agriculture, Mm -hmm. that put almost 30% of the US out of work within basically a decade and a half. Mm. We still see the people who moved from the South to the cities in that area their descendants are still in poverty, right? So it's, we essentially haven't gotten over it, even though it's been three generations now. So like, how are we supposed to adapt? Yeah, I, I hear a lot of different arguments about it. I mean, one is the universal basic income argument, um, but that would kind of require everything to happen so quick that we could all agree that that's what needs to happen. Like there would need to be such a rapid kind of removal of human capable jobs that you know it just we just say okay everybody gets some portion of UBI like 
the people who are paying for UBI are the people that are employing robots instead of humans. And there's this like, there's this whole argument to be had about who contributes to what, who gets to pull how much. And it's a whole other thing, but it's like everybody has some kind of money so that they're not just starving because they can't get any job because the robots took it all. So that's one thing. The other argument is that um, one way or another, like humans want to speak and work with humans. And so it's like capitalism works on the supply and, you know, principle of supply and demand. And so like if the demand says that you should employ humans, then you're going to employ humans, even if it helps your bottom line. Like, you know, if Amazon decides that they're going to replace 50% of their people with, you know, robots and self-driving cars instead of human operators, you know, well, the question becomes like, is there going to be enough of a change in the demand for Amazon that they're going to reverse that or decide not to do that? And the answer is probably not. Don't, don't we already know the answer, right? I mean, call centers are basically the answer to your question, right? I'm sure that just about everybody prefers to call a phone number and have a human in the US answer that phone. Exactly. Exactly. No. And that, so that's, you know, that's the theory, right? And both of these are theories. I got to make sure I say that like UBI is a theory, like we, and you know, we think maybe that'll help, but we don't know. And we think that supply and demand is going to help. We don't know. Maybe some kind of regulation comes in and and does something about it. But even then it's like, you're, there's always going to be loopholes. Like there's always going to be kind of like, well, I'm not technically falling under that regulation because I'm doing it this way. And you know, the outcome is still the same. I employed less people when I employ more robots, but like I'm, I'm not subject to that. Like, so a perfect example is like this whole copyright thing, right? Like people are freaking out about it and there's even like the actors strike, you know, that's a whole big thing. And so like people are wondering like, what's going to come out of this? And um, I think Google has kind of had it known all along and Meta because everything they're doing is mostly open source. I mean, Google, they're not open sourcing like Palm and their large language models that they're using for chat. But the way that they've set up their product is that it's not like OpenAI where you can just go and sign up, sign up for a plan and start using it. You have to set up the infrastructure. You have to set up all the cloud infrastructure around it that hosts that model. And then right now you are billing, being billed based off of the usage of the model. But it would be so easy for Google to just flip it and just be like, oh, we're not charging you for the use of the model. We're charging you for the use of the server. And the model is open source. So, you know, we're not going to get in trouble for that. So we don't fall under copyright law. But the thing is the same, right? Like the original creator of the, of the, work is not getting the benefit of creating the work because there's this AI that was trained on it without having to pay them for it. So that's what I'm saying with these like regulations and relying on regulation to right. do the work is basically like, you know, there's always going to be those types of scenarios where it's like, okay, if you like, let's say you employ 40% of your workforce is AI, you have to pay you know, this much taxes and this many fees that are going to go into the universal basic income uh, fund that's going to help other people that would have gotten that income instead. Well, then all you have to do is either subcontract out some of that or reclassify it or purchase from a distributor in a way that doesn't classify it as a, you know, AI technically or can classify it in a way that doesn't make you subject to that taxes. And so now you're 
not giving people a job and you're not contributing to the UBI fund. And so now we're just on a net negative. Okay. Yeah, I, I can give you an even more cynical outlook on this because essentially what you're describing right now is an attempt at benevolent <laughs> regulation and then an attempt to skirt it. But the reality is there is no such thing as benevolent regulation, right? Yeah. The regulations are written by someone. What are their incentives? And typically their incentives are not, we think UBI mm -hmm. will be good for the world. They are much more complex than that. They have something to do with donor money, re-election, good messaging, great article written about you tomorrow. Uh, this guy asked for a favor yesterday. If I do this, then maybe he will vote for my bill tomorrow. It's much more complex. And so what you get typically as regulation is much closer to what the industry being regulated wants than <laughs> what is actually yeah. good for, well, anybody. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's the cynical view in me. Um, but so I'm thinking that's one aspect of it how to get money into people's hands if they have no nothing else to buy food with. But then how do you give the meaning? Like if you just gave them money and they went out and bought a bunch of food. Yeah. Well, I, and I mean, on do? that sense, I think we'll find life? out just how many people are doing jobs that they don't like to make ends meet, right? Like there's a lot of people that would rather be doing something else that they're passionate about that they can't do because it just doesn't make ends meet or they're just not in that position like you know perfect example for me is like i wanted to go to school to be a neuro you know a neuroscientist like i wanted to learn that's what i wanted to do i wanted to be a doctor and be a neuroscientist and i couldn't i couldn't afford 12 years of school i couldn't afford or you know I, and i'm sure there's ways i could have made it happen if i wanted to but like to make that happen i would have had to go do a job that i hated right and then maybe life came along and now i'm not able to get into school and i've been in this job for 8 years and now that's just where i'm at in life and that happens to a lot of people like they go to they go to a job to try to fund a school to get a degree to get into a career and yada 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 but then they just get stuck in that job and they're not able to get out of it so we'll find out how many of those people are out there and we'll see what they would have done if they would have had the opportunity to just spend their time how they wanted. Um, and so I think in that regards, like there's going to be, I don't think we'll have trouble with people like coming up with what to do. I think it's really going to come down to a net supply of resources. <laughs> it's really going to come down to like having enough resources for everybody because like, you know, part of what keeps you from consuming so much besides your bank account is your time, right? Like, you know, you don't go out and consume resources while you're at work. And like, if you have free time and you don't have any liability to be anywhere else or any accountability or anything, you can just go out and consume as much as you want. And there is no regulation on it. So it's like, yeah, we're talking about scary stuff for sure. <laughs> we're talking about hard, hard decisions. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right, let me make it even more difficult before we're done. Um, we mentioned ethics, but I think there is a layer of ethics that is not really being discussed just yet. And it's the fact that when you raise a child, and you know this, you have a three-year-old, you said, right? The child learns, supervised things about the world and your own ethical framework, whatever that happens to be, right? That is a part of your parenting process to teach morals to the child. I don't think we're training our AI models with moral reasoning. We're not feeding, you know, Epictetus or Kant into them, trying to help them learn which decisions are good <laughs> and which decisions are bad. Uh, 
Should we? <laughs> and if so, should we try to agree on what that is? It looks like parents don't quite agree. And some parents take their morals from a religion. Some parents take their morals from reading that Greek people, right? Um, yeah. But what should we do here? Should we try to come up with a framework of if these things are going to think for themselves, at least within certain bounds, right. should we also give them some of their own moral reasoning? So I yes, just to answer off the bat, a model should have its own moral reasoning because otherwise you're just giving information with no morality and that's dangerous because like you could teach somebody how to build a bomb. You teach somebody how to cause violence and you're raising a really smart psychopath. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, literally. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) So, you know, um, I think we should definitely incorporate some type of intelligence into there. Now, I should also say though that what I talked about earlier really applies and that's the model has to be trained, you know, like it has to have a person's intent trained into it. And so what I personally think is going to be the biggest step forward in making sure that all of the ethics are kind of covered during this is going to be data transparency. And like whenever you open source a model, you have to put a model card and you have to put where you got the data from. And so like having that be the standard practice, because there is no standard practice around that right now for um, like open AI, they don't necessarily have to publish where they got their data from and how they train their data. And like, well, if they published that they would have been sued by more than just the New York <laughs> yeah. Times. Yeah, exactly. And like, um, you know, me personally, if I go and download a model and train it and then upload it to my own service, like for Capri, if I fine tune a model and then offer that as a model instead of ChatGPT, I don't legally have to publish my data card. I don't have to legally publish where I got my data from. I just have to offer the model. And so that's where the accountability is lost because I can kind of be like, I don't know why I would say something like that. It's a large language model. Like we'll we'll do our best to train it out of that. But, you know, if I had a model card with a data set that showed where it trained, and then you could like go through that data and see that a lot of it is following this bias or it is following this theme, then you could make that argument back to me to be like, hey, look, like you clearly trained it on this type of data you you knew. Would you always know? Or would there be cases where because it's not rule-based, you can't understand why it made that decision? Yeah. Right? The Roomba decided to kill the cat because it's the source of dirt in this house. And you will not understand what exact data set made the Roomba kill the cat, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, it's not 100% coverage for sure, but like, let's say China trained a model and you asked it, what is the better country, China or the US? It's always going to say China. And if the US trained a model and you asked it the same question, it would always say the US, even though the model is the same underneath. And it's because they were trained on two different sets of data. And you would be able to see the themes consistently showing that the US is the better country or China is the better country because the intent, that's where the intent comes out. Is like your intent can't really hide itself especially if you do it kind of at scale, you know, and if you don't do it at scale, then it won't have enough data to learn from to create that bias for. So it's like the intent really is where a lot of the, I think the maliciousness lies and a lot of the morality has to be questioned is like, what is your, why do you want to make this model? And I want to make sure I point out the good too. Like having this type of model 
available to anybody gives people without access to like legal counsel the ability to ask legal questions and know that it's not going to be total bullshit like it gives people the ability to ask like medical questions that may not have access to medical care right then and there though i have to tell you right now you get quite a bit of bullshit (laughs) you do get quite a bit of bullshit and i've tested this with legal specifically I, i think the specific example that i had to research at some point was what is the definition of foreign source in ITAR, um, which is a regulation for export control, right? Yeah. And I got a very elaborate answer. Um, but the real answer is there is none. It's not mentioned oh. there. <laughs> oh, okay. I got a really elaborate answer that yeah. was partially made up, partially copy-pasted from a completely different law. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, that's never going to... I mean, that's always going to be an issue, especially with like just pure foundation models. But like, you know if you could specialize it more towards like one particular type of law like you know immigration law let's say like this is what somebody was asking me about before is like oh i want to make it easier for people who want to immigrate to the us to get their questions answered about what they need to do what's allowed what's not allowed all that kind of stuff and normally you have to have a legal counsel to do that like you have to have somebody who went to law school and is familiar on immigration law and most people I don't want to say most people, but a lot of people who are trying to get immigrated legally don't have the funds to have a legal counsel so they can never make it. So this would be a tool that they could have to potentially fulfill that dream of coming to the US and you know knowing all the stuff that they need to know beforehand because they had access to this tool. And so um, you know, like in that in that way, it's it's providing that information and creating that like net benefit for society and giving people opportunities that they wouldn't normally have. Um, but then you, you know, you just got to kind of weigh it out with all the other stuff that we talked about today, basically. Yep. So let's hope we'll get more of the good than the other stuff. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. All right. And on that hopeful note, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. I think we're almost at one hour. So, uh, thank you so much. And I hope we can talk again soon. Yeah. I appreciate you having me on. It was definitely a fun conversation. This has been another episode of the other web. Join us next time for more discussions on news, media, and everything in between.